0: what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of tmt time a podcast put out by Arnold porter's telecommunications technology media group i'm evan roth senior host one of the co-chairs of the group and i'm back here with an expert on trade secrets we're taking a little bit of a detour from what we've done in the past two episodes and i'm delighted to have one of my partners in our Chicago office here, Dina Hayes. Welcome into the podcast, Dina.
1: Hey, Evan. Hey, everybody. It's nice to, uh, nice to be here and talk some trade secrets.
0: We're getting a fresh voice on a cutting-edge topic, and so if it's okay with you, Dina, I will jump right in. Uh, I would want it no other way. Let's just uh, dive right in. All right. We're going to talk about something called workplace mobility. What is workplace mobility? So,
1: you know, it's a fancy term, the workplace mobility that basically tries to encapsulate what happens when you've got employees uh, looking for new jobs, uh, taking another job, what materials um, that may be implicated in in them jumping uh, to a new job and particularly with a competitor. So in the trade secret context, when you hear workforce mobility, Um, it, it, you, you should kind of think and, and frame the issue as where, what can someone do when they look for a new job, get to a new job, um, and leave their old job basically.
0: So I assume you advise clients on both sides of this issue. In other words, you're talking to sometimes employers who've had employees leave and then employers who are onboarding or trying to hire employees. Am I right on that?
1: Absolutely. And and actually, the third kind of component is that is we'll work with the Arnold and Porter employments uh, and labor and labor group, um, because they will definitely consult with the employee who may be kind of straddling those two, those two positions. But yeah, we do a ton of work um, when trying to structure for a company um, with their employment agreements, non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements, um, which typically had what's called the non-compete clause, right? Um, and so we worked with clients to, to, to create those boilerplate, um, not so boilerplate, but routine contracts um, to try and protect their information within their house. Um, and, and also when you have a company that is hiring and onboarding, we'll work with them. Um, to see if they can screen off and really make sure that they're protected when competitor employees come over. Um, Because there is so much fluidity, um, you know, really people are in high demand that are bright, uh, really, you know, high end um, technical and when there's specialized uh, technologies involved, there is some fluidity. Uh, The days of, of somebody working at a Microsoft or an IBM or wherever it may be for 40, 50 years, I I think are kind of over.
0: So let me ask you a couple of questions about those types of agreements. I think you said employment agreements or or NDAs. How do those things come into play when you're trying to either enforce or protect uh, against the theft of trade secrets? So
1: typically um, the non-disclosure agreement, and again, we'll, we'll keep this focused in the IP world, right? That's where, where you and I, Evan, spend most of our time. Um, so in the IP world, the non-disclosure agreements are ones, again, on the employee side, where you are got a new job, you're super excited in all the paperwork that you're filling out. There's typically a non-disclosure agreement, which tries to set the, the guidelines and the rules on how you're gonna do your job. You are going to be, um, you're going to have access to that company's really, you know, people will call them the crown jewels. People will call them the secret sauce. Um, Certain things that have been in that company for years, uh, decades, or things that are going to be developed and you're going to have access to that. And so the company They're going to invest all this time and money in you and your group, and you want to make sure that you've got the non-disclosure agreement, which which sets out the guidelines on what you can do with the information and documents, how it is to be marked, where it is to be kept, um, where it is to be saved, and um, how it can be shared, if at all. So those are what you'd see and and what you'd think of with a typical non-disclosure agreement. Sometimes they're referred to as confidentiality agreements.
0: So how does a, what you called earlier, a non-compete, obviously, you know, those things are in the news all the time. Company A uh, wants to hire an employee from company B, and the employee has what's called a non-compete agreement. Let's talk about that for a minute.
1: Right. And so a non-compete agreement is a way that companies, and I, I will say used to, because what I think the the point of the discussion today is that it's it's really trending away um, they used to kind of have a belt and suspenders approach to protecting their information. And they would say, okay, I'm gonna hire this, this um, engineer or this person and they're gonna help me launch this either business group or, or project or part or you name it. Um, and I'm gonna, I wanna kind of protect it from every which way. So I'll, I'll protect how the information is treated, but I also wanna make sure that I don't spend all this time and money um, and then they basically get lured they get poached by a competitor of mine um, and they go start working across the street and just hit the ground running with all of the the work that they've already done. So people would put these non-compete either clauses or a whole separate agreement that would that would restrict who you could work for. it would restrict how you can work for them it would restrict, um, really how far of a, of a company, like literally in a geographical sense, as well as the business sector. So um, they were a way for a company to, like I said, kind of double down on their protection, on their investment with the respect to employees. Um, and they've, they were their routine and, and they were pretty accepted for a long, long time. And I think recently um, states have, have, been in the situation where they find that they're not protective of the actual employees, that they're hurting the employees, the workforce, because of their restraint on being able to find a place to work.
0: Yeah, actually, in my state, in Colorado, the non-compete agreement is per se invalid, statutory wise, unless you fit under a couple of really narrow exceptions, including sale of a business or here, at the employee is at a super high level that she or he has such incredible access to this type of trade secret information that if he or she was to go to a new company, then you know, they could enforce a non-compete, but most of the time here, they're invalid. I actually read uh, recently that there was actually a bill going through Congress, uh, which kind of spurred this whole podcast. So I, I, wanna, I don't want to like hide the lead here for you, Dina, but the there's something called the Workplace Mobility Act at the federal level. Why don't you tell us what that is?
1: Exactly. And like like what you'll see with most federal statutes is they try to have the uniformity that state protections have tried to kind of patchwork provide. So like you said, in in the state you're in, uh, California is is very um, anti-non-compete. So what the federal uh, statute attempts to do, and it's actually got bipartisan support. It's one, um, in, in one version of another that's been introduced a number of times, um, and just really not gained much traction, but basically it, it, it does exactly that. It invalidates most non-competes, restrain on employee mobility, um, in, unless in certain circumstances, when there are um, high-level executives um, and going to a direct competitor, um, things like that. I mean, there's st- it's still probably going to get reworked and and edited to the extent it, it again get passes, but it really tries to prov- to provide that uniformity. Um, I think it's HR 1367 out there, and and um, it really. Um, it's sought to protect the low wage. Um, It's sought to protect average wage earners because those are the ones that perhaps don't have the job security. So by restricting them, you're really doing them a disservice um, and anyone a disservice in, in, in looking to job advance um, or get a promotion or, or try a new opportunity.
0: Yeah. I got to tell you, I get these reports here in Colorado of lawsuits that get filed every night and Sometimes I see these cases that get filed mostly in state courts where a a paving company is suing someone who has left their job and gone to a different paving company and you pull it up and it's just someone who is literally like boots on the ground type people and he or she has a non-compete and they're trying to stop him or her from going to work somewhere else and that really bugs me because I, you know, I look at this like you do from a, an IP perspective, technology perspective. I'm looking at if someone has like, you know, the crown jewel source code and they have access and they wrote the source code and now they're going to another competitor, like a, a Google or Uber Waymo type situation. That's to me when a non-compete may be able to come into play, but I really don't think I like what you're saying. And maybe this house bill will get somewhere if it has bipartisan support. But I have to say, my guess is the Big tech, big companies are, are going to lobby heavily against this type of bill because those are the companies that are trying to restrict employee movement and, you, you know, given that they're working in high tech fields, you can't really blame them. What do you think the chances are of something like this getting through on the federal level?
1: You know, I I think it's I think it's got a decent chance, I think, because there are other protections. Right. And I think that's what a lot of the the supporters and proponents of the federal statute say is, look, you've got trade secret protection. You've got patent protection. You've got copyright. You know, there are so many other avenues for you to protect your information should it get into the hands of a competitor. that, that it's okay to to let to really take the foot off the gas on the, on the non-competes. Um, and that makes sense to me, right? I mean, if you're saying that you're gonna have, it's really for trade secret and where the interplay with trade secret misappropriation is that, listen, it's really incumbent upon company, we'll call them company A, um, to protect your information. You've got to have it articulated somewhere, reasonable security measures, and those can all be protected under your employment agreement right? That person who's leaving knows what they can and can't do with the information. And that person, when they leave, right, they should leave their stuff. And you as company A need to have an exit interview. You need to jump through and check those boxes to make sure that, you know what, you've gotten their laptop. You've asked them to go through certain things um, where they may keep data, uh, things like that. You know, I mean, the days of, oh, I'm going to, you know, shoot some couple things to my Gmail for my work email and I'm gonna be able to pick it up at my new job. I mean, companies have gotten just much more savvy with tracking that. Um, and so there are other ways to protect a company's information. It's it's not gonna be um, one where just because the non-competes aren't enforceable on a, on a large scale that you're really kind of uh, opening the doors to the barn. Um, and so it really, it, again, it puts I think um, the impetus on per, again what trade secrets are for: protect your information, know where it is. Now, I mean, Evan, look at where we're going to be with with so many people working from home, right? You have a lot of people working from home or working remotely over the past year. The information that they they probably have locally, perhaps on their home network or things like that, that are not maybe as secure as you would like in the office, um, and now re-entering the workforce. Um, suppose your, your employer's not gonna let you have the flexibility that you've had this past year. So you know what, I'm gonna look for a new job that's gonna provide that flexibility. And so really it's the timing I think is interesting when you've got people reentering the workforce, uh, thinking about the IP issues, about where their information is and how it's to be protected, um, and at the same time, uh, not inhibiting people's uh, ability to, to get a new job or, or look for new
0: opportunities. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I agree with you. To pick up on that last piece you just mentioned, everybody working from home or most people working from home, it's much more difficult to monitor what they're doing and prevent them from going somewhere else. And I agree with you that it is incumbent upon the employer's uh, to put those adequate protections in place and make sure that their employees are doing what they're supposed to doing, and I think you know the non-compete is one piece of that, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't really solve the puzzle or it's not the whole puzzle. And I kind of agree with some of the policy behind the HR 1367, and we know Biden's pro-union and pro-labor, so. Perhaps we'll get some more movement on that. I got to tell you though I, I'm working on this case right now and granted the fact scenarios from many years ago, but the enforcer of the trade secrets, in my instance, allowed the individual who left to continue accessing his email system after he was terminated for almost a month, yeah, and is still trying to enforce things that he may have allegedly took. And I think you know, in that situation, like that's got to be on the employer, right?
1: Yeah, you know, it does. But then let's, but the mirror side of that, and I can make the argument that as I'm hiring, I should also really sharpen my pencil on what my policies and procedures are going to be when I'm hiring someone that I know was a competitor, worked for a competitor of mine, right? That's probably why I'm hiring them. (laughs) They have this knowledge and 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 experience. And, you know, that's that know-how piece, which is really hard to to enforce from the trade sacred sense. But if they've got the documents and the contacts, um, you as as the hiring company should also make sure that you check your own boxes to um, educate that person, remind them of their obligations, remind them of what they should not be taking with them, using, sharing with their employee, with their new new, uh, coworkers, because it is, Super hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Once there's been some, um, you know, one email kind of you know lasts a, a, a million years about where that can end up and um, be documented. So uh, on the on the side, it is yes, I think the the first per round of protection is the, is the the company where the employee is leaving, but also uh, we consult with our clients a ton about okay, let's have some policies and procedures. Well, I mean, what do you want? you're hiring intake to look like um, and having the benefit of both consulting on the, on the exit interview side gives you some insight uh, on, on what you should be looking at on, the in, on the intake as well.
0: So my takeaway from this and what I hope our listeners are taking away from this is while we can retain you to help litigate the situation of trade secret theft when it happens, the better hire is to bring you inside to the company before it happens to help the company plan and create a coherent trade secret protection strategy an employment strategy so that when these things do happen or one prevent them from happening and when they do happen they have the things put in place to be able to quickly snuff out anything that may happen as a result of an employee leaving
1: absolutely and and you know what with, with the federal statute that's being proposed for the workforce mobility i mean it it adds that doj type element and component to it whereas um you know there that's going to be to be something that needs to be considered, again, when you're hiring, um, whether or not it's going to be something where you're going to get a knock on the door about uh, criminal implications, theft of trade secrets, um, and how you as the hiring company may be complicit in that. So it's scary on that sense. Um, You know, the, the, the Defend Trade Secret Act on the federal level um, helped with the uniformity on the protection side for misappropriation, and I think this workforce mobility because it does specifically call out the exception that it's 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 still protecting trade secrets. It is a goal to protect a company's trade secrets, but not to the detriment of um, you know the workforce mobility. I mean, it's it didn't have to get a creative title. It's, it's does it serves its purpose.
0: I really like how you brought us back to that because we're nearing the end of our time and I needed a segue and you just gave me one. So thank you very much. Bam! That's what I'm talking about, Dina. That's (laughs) what a a good podcast guest does. So, you know, we'll follow this Workplace Mobility Act closely. Let's see if it uh, gets its way through the House and maybe the Senate and maybe we'll reconvene here to talk about the implications of the passage of such a bill here in the months to come. But Dina, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to hear from you. Hopefully our listeners got some insight. Do you have any final parting words before we sign off?
1: No, it's been my pleasure. I'd love to come back and and see if this thing gets passed.
0: All right. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll uh, catch you on the flip side.